Well, we're continuing with our series, we're actually concluding our series this morning that we've been uh, looking at for the past four weeks. It's called Great Turnarounds, and this morning we're kind of taking a little bit of a twist, and we're talking about Jesus and the recovering church. So, the real short passage that this is going to be based on, but Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. But notice this next verse. Those who had been scattered preached the word, sorry for that typo, preached the word wherever they went. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you have moved in surprising ways in the past and for the way that you, move, you work in surprising ways and move in surprising ways in the present. We're here, all of us, because we acknowledge that you are God or we are trying to find you and we long for you to work in our lives. We long for you not only to receive our songs of praise and to listen to our prayers. We want to learn more about you in such a way that we connect with you at a greater level and we experience you in a more profound way. So I ask that you would do something here this morning, God. I ask that through your Holy Spirit, through the presence of Jesus in our lives, that you would touch each and every one of us, that you would give us a greater sense of hope for moving forward in life and for navigating our way through a very confusing world around us. I pray that you would embolden the hope that we already have and take it to a higher level. I pray that you would give us a clearer sense of what the next steps are that you want us to take as individuals, as families, as a church. Lord, we ask that you would walk with those who are who are struggling for whatever reason this morning. I ask that you'd give them strength. I ask that you'd give them wisdom. I specifically think of Joan Cahill. I ask that you would give her the strength as she fights for every breath. And I pray that in the right time and in the right way, you would answer her prayer and take her home and allow her to be at rest. We know that there are others who are struggling with cancers and uh, health illnesses that are part of our, our church, and we ask that you would give them strength and hope, the ability to persevere and press on in the midst of the trial. There are others here who are experiencing difficulties in their families or in the community or at work, and, and, and we ask that you'd give them wisdom. We ask that you would give them a sense of, of peace and being present here today. We pray that you'd give us all wisdom so that we can navigate life well and graciously especially where we don't have all the facts. And allow us to persevere in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, tonight is the glory of God gathering that happens uh, on the South Shore once a month. This week, uh, they're meeting at 6 p.m. at uh, a church in Middleborough, the Lifehouse Church. Um, address is on the front of your notes here this morning if you grab them on the way in. Here's where I want to start this morning. 
If you think back in the darkest days of the COVID shutdown period, many of us found ourselves captivated by some of the Netflix series or some other portal that you are watching on that seemed to have a far better sense of writing than American network television. Anybody get caught up in, in all of that? There's some series that captivated you? One of the series that we watched was from England called Broadchurch, and it was named after a small coastal town where there was a murder of a middle school age boy that takes place. And the whole town throughout this series is on edge as two local inspectors begin to interview people. They're following very vague clues, trying to get to the answer, get to the bottom of this, this troubling scene that is, is perplexing everybody in this small town. Everybody has quirks and foibles, and it's an amazing discovery as they put together the, the clues to figure out who would have done such a thing. Now, what often captivates us in a series like this one has to do with twists and turns in the plot line, and the ups and downs of character development cause us to scratch our heads saying, wow, I didn't really see that one coming. Now, in many ways, when you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the fifth book of the New Testament, you find a scenario or a series of scenarios that play out just like that. There are surprising twists and turns in the plot line where we think that we figured out who are the heroes and who are the villains, and suddenly there's a transformation that we didn't see coming, or there's a series of events that makes us think that this part of the story is all over, and yet a new chapter brings life from the ashes and takes us in a whole different direction, and we scratch our heads and say, I didn't see that one coming. Here's my point. The end of Acts chapter 7 and the opening part of Acts chapter 8 are exactly like that. One of the rising heroes in the early part of the story of the Acts of the Apostles is Stephen, and Stephen is brutally put to death, and persecution against the church breaks out, and at the same time we are introduced to a man who approves of the death and persecution of Stephen and the persecution of the church, which is designed to snuff out the life of the church. And he turns out to be one of the keys of the church's rapid growth and international expansion. This month, we've been looking at this series called Great Turnarounds. And each week, we've been learning about the recovery work that God does within his people. This morning, as we wrap up this five-week series, we're going to turn the focus just a little bit from individuals to the church as a whole. This last piece teaches us to look for what God is up to whenever the plot line takes a dark and surprising turn. So here's our topic for this morning, Jesus and the Recovering Church. Welcome to North River today. I'm so glad that you're back here with us on our Pembroke campus. I want to extend a, a greeting, as just as Todd did a moment ago, to those of you who are part of our online congregation as well. Thank you for making the effort to participate with us and to continue to worship and learn together. We've been learning and celebrating each week, and I love watching this baptism video a few minutes ago from the event we had a couple of weeks ago. They are signs of life and moments of joy that are able to encourage us all. If you're watching online, there are a couple of simple ways that you can connect with us this morning. You can go to our website, northriverchurch.org forward slash visit. Also, if you're new here in the room this morning, you can find a, a connection card that you can fill out there, and that allows us to begin the conversation with you. Whatever information you give us, we'll follow up on. 
The other way to do that is if you're here live, you can walk out to the Welcome Center and just ask for a connection card. That ends up on my desk, and we uh, begin the conversation. If all else fails, go to my email address, paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to hear what your thoughts and impressions are, what your questions may be from your experience this morning. Let me start with this. I'd like to talk about why, why the words church and recovery seem like an odd pairing. Three quick reasons. Here's the first one. We think that recovery is for individuals most of the time. We tend to tie the concept of recovery to individuals and individual needs. When we stretch that to a spiritual or biblical way, we can see the needs of Moses, Naomi, Ruth, and David, all that we've looked at for the last few weeks, and even Peter last week after denying that he knew Jesus. But we don't typically think of churches as being in need of recovery, churches themselves. Here's a second reason. Church is a place we come to for recovery. We don't think the church itself needs recovery. So this seems like an odd pairing because the church is supposed to be a place we come to for recovery. Recovery from addiction to sin, recovery from destructive habits, recovery from divorce, recovery from loss of a loved one, and so much more. Doesn't all this get jeopardized if we see the church itself as in need of recovery, we think? Here's a third reason why this pairing seems a little bit odd. We start to think, well, I thought that the church had Jesus' guarantee for success. Just after Peter acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus responded this way, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell, depending on which translation you're using, will not prevail against it or will not succeed against the church. First, we need to realize that there are some details that are hard to interpret in that statement from Jesus. There's a wordplay on the name Peter and the rock on which the church is built. Uh, Peter is the Greek word petros, which is the, the masculine form of that word. But there's a second word that's used here, petra, and petros usually means a large rock. So we think of Peter as being rocky, like Rocky Balboa. Petra can mean a stone or a large stone or even a little stone. So there's some kind of wordplay that Jesus is uh, employing here that sometimes leaves us out of the humor that would be easily seen in the Greek language but's lost in English. We wonder, what does that mean? Uh, you're Peter, the big rock. Well, it's really on this little rock, Peter, that I'm building my church. The Roman Catholic Church has interpreted this puzzle as meaning the church was built on Peter as the leader. And so there, there are many uh, forms of the church throughout history that have focused on that. Most Protestant churches have been at odds with that since there are other passages that talk about Jesus as being the stone the builders rejected and the cornerstone. And so they look at this passage through that lens and say, well, the ultimate rock that the church is built on is Jesus, the immovable rock, the rock to which we can anchor our hopes and our fears. And then we have this gates of hell will not prevail against it or overcome its statement. Well, when Jesus used the word ecclesia or church for the first time, it spoke of a movement. There were no local church buildings anywhere in the entire world that existed. Oh, there were synagogues and there were temples to other faiths, but no Christian churches. So the, ch the only church that existed at that time was a movement of people. 
That simply means that Jesus was referring to the church at large as a, a movement that was changing and growing and developing, not a building or not even a group of people who are locked into a building when we meet. So he was not saying that the local church in a specific location may never go out of business. So here's my point. Local churches can and do fail for a number of reasons. The greatest is when the local church loses sight of its mission and becomes something else. That is why knowing North River's mission is so essential around here and why we talk about it from time to time. Here's our mission. Helping people who are far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. The front part of that recognizes that we don't want to practice our faith as committed Christians in such a way that we don't leave room for the person who's brand new and speak in some uh, otherworldly, churchy kind of language so that people think we're part of a cult. Rather, we, we want to create room where people can understand easily what we're talking about, and, and we want to have the expectation that there are people here kicking the tires every week, and in the process of trying to put together enough facts to get to the point where they can put their faith and trust in Jesus. And many of you have gone through right, uh, gone right through that kind of process here. But the back half of that is, how do we become fully developed with all that God wants for us? And Just about everything we're commanded to do falls under two headings. We're either doing things out of worship for God or we are serving Him in the same way that Jesus came to serve. So here's my question for this morning. What can we learn from the scattering of the very first church in existence that we read about here in Acts 8, 1 through 4? First, we see why the church needs recovery and when the church needs recovery. The church needs recovery when things look bleak. Verse 1 says, And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's a great word, scattered. I want you to think about that. For the first time, things looked really bleak for the very first church. The hymn at the end of that first sentence was Stephen. Stephen was one of the very first deacons in the very first church in Jerusalem. Acts 6.3 tells us the requirements for this group of deacons. They were people who were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And Stephen had all of that and more. They also had to be good administrators. They took on the food distribution for widows. Some of those widows were turned out by their families when they put their faith in Jesus. So the church fed them and provided places in their homes. And the apostles realized that they couldn't do all this themselves. They needed help, and they appointed these deacons. Now, you would think that being a deacon in the church was a safe and honorable role, right? In most cases, it really is. Stephen specifically performed signs of God's power and wonder, meaning there were miraculous things that happened all around Stephen as he was serving. So he was targeted by the enemies of the very first church. At his trial before the chief priests, he testified to the role of Jesus in what God was doing in the world at that point, and he blasted the high priests for their, their religious hypocrisy. And the people who were part of that entourage stoned him to death for this. So here's what's going on behind that. When they couldn't stop the apostles, Peter, John, James, and so forth, they went after the deacons. 
Let me talk to our deacons here this morning. Some of them are serving out in the lobby. Some are sprinkled throughout our, our congregation this morning. Your role is incredibly important to a healthy church. We need you. We need your best. You have been charged with helping to meet needs and to build unity within the church, often in ways that are behind the scenes and often thankless. Your role, well done, brings praise to God and a sense of awe to the church because there are stories that begin to filter through about how somebody was helped here and how somebody was helped there, often at times when they were at their rawest and worst. Essentially, you take care of anything that keeps the pastors like me and the overseers from doing what we do best. Therefore, you are vital to the success of a healthy North River. But I have to give you a warning. The evil one thinks that you are dangerous, and you are dangerous enough to want to disrupt you or to stop you from doing what you do through discouragement or anything else. Thank you for doing what you do. Things look bleak when people who love to serve in that very first church were being attacked and scattered. So notice that opening sentence now. It says, and Saul approved their killing him. This was Saul of Tarsus. He held the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen to death. Or they laid them at his feet and he was watching over the purses and pocketbooks and wallets and coats and giving his approval for what was happening. And soon he would step up the persecution to a whole new level. That word scattered is an interesting word. It's the same word that described the disciples after Jesus had been arrested, after Judas betrayed him. And now it's used to describe the church as a whole. It was being scattered. The church also needs recovery when the church mourns. Look at verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. There's something buried in that little sentence. Godly people mourn. And sometimes we mourn very, very deeply. There are times when an entire church mourns. You get the sense that this was happening at this specific time. They were mourning the persecution that everybody was feeling. They were mourning the scattering of friends and lost relationships. They probably wanted to hold on to the way that the church had once been. But that was not what God had for them. And now on top of all of that, they were mourning the loss of Stephen. They'd lost a great friend. They'd lost a great leader. This loss and persecution colored the whole persona of the church for a little while. It's easy to lose focus when you go through a season of mourning and loss. So my family's been going through that a little bit this week. On Wednesday, my mother-in-law, Mary, passed on. She was 88. She was losing her battle to cancer. We saw it coming. But this is a big loss for our family. It's a big loss for Sue and for me and her brother and our kids. She was the last parent in our family at that generation. So there are some natural things that happen when you go through that. This kind of loss calls for some reorganization. Questions start to arise. What's our family look like now? Who gathers us now? How do we look at the holidays now that all of this has changed? Yesterday I spent about a half an hour with Joan Cahill. Joan's been going through the same process my mother-in-law is going through. Same age, both living in Linden Ponds. They were friends and Joan had been coming here for about five years. And uh, she's wondering why she's still here. 
And one of the things I said to her is, Joan, you have no idea how much spending a half an hour next to your bedside, when I came to minister to you, you have no idea how much you are ministering to me and you are ministering to your family. And I just said, Joan, you are showing us how a Christian faces death. Knowing that you want to see Jesus and, and wishing that the suffering part was over, but every day praying from your bedside all day long and blessing your grandkids and your kids and, and your daughters and their husbands. And this is an amazing th- scene that is playing out. And Joan, I walk away. I came in here with a very heavy heart. I walk away emboldened because of the way that you are facing the end of life with faith in Jesus. My mother-in-law drove all the doctors and nurses crazy last weekend because she told them, I'm going to die on Tuesday. I'm going to see Jesus on Tuesday. And everybody looked at her and said, Lady, you are nuts. (laughs) And you know what? She died on Wednesday. She was only 24 hours off. And she told them, I'm ready. I'm ready to see Jesus. This is the way a Christian faces death. We need to do a really good job of ministering to seniors. But get this straight. Seniors do an amazing job of ministering to the rest of us when they live with that kind of faith and hope. Churches go through this. Yes, do that. Churches go through this kind of loss, mourning, and reorganization every time we lose a beloved leader. So look, I'm not going to say anything beyond what I'm supposed to say or reveal here, but most of you are aware that our children's ministries pastor pulled up stakes and left very abruptly a few weeks ago. However, that does not change the values that we have here at North River. There is a small handful of things that we need to excel at as top priorities at North River Church. One of them is Sunday morning worship gatherings like this one. Another of them is children's ministries and youth ministries, adult small groups and discipleship, and I would add outreach to to that short list. Those are the five things we have to excel at as a church before we add on a whole lot of other things that are good, but these five have to be at the top of our priorities. So this transition is an important time because children's ministries needs to be at the very, very top, at one of the highest points on that list. Why? Very simple reason. Kids cannot fend for themselves or teach themselves things that they do not know spiritually. So I want to ask you to do a couple things. Pray for the team that is rallying behind the scenes every weekend right now to lead and to reorganize what's going on in a temporary way. And it's amazing the way that there have been people who have been saying, you need help, I'm on board. You need help, count on me for a weekend every month for, until we get all this reorganized. You need help, I'm on for two weekends every month. And it's just been so encouraging to hear those kind of stories rippling through our congregation. Please pray over the selection of the next children's ministries director. Todd and a small team are are working through that. They've interviewed some people, and, and they're trying to pray their way through that. As we recruit a team of parents and teachers, I want to say to the congregation at large, there is not a more strategic way for you to impact the health of North River Church right now than joining the Kids Zone staff for this fall or for this season. Maybe you've been there, done that, and you said, I've, I've graduated beyond my time in serving in children's ministries, but I want to lay out the challenge here. There's no more vital year to be involved in children's ministries than this one because we're going through changes and we're reorganizing that. And if you have any inkling from the Holy Spirit, we need your help. Line up, go see Todd, talk with somebody who's involved in kids' ministries this weekend, and 
I think that's the vital cutting edge of where God is moving right now in our church to breathe greater health and greater life. And I want whoever that next children's ministries director is to have an army of people at his or her disposal to say, I am ready to go with you because this is the cutting edge of our spiritual work here at North River right now. Anybody in agreement with that? I hope so. Here's the big idea for this morning. When circumstances look bleak, look for what God does next. God is always at work behind the scenes when everything else looks bleak to the naked eye. God is working through all of the change and the surprise and everything that is happening. Look for what God is doing next. Here's a third time when the church needs recovery. When we face direct opposition, verse 3 comes in. But Saul began to destroy the church. Here's how he did it. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul became the face of direct opposition toward the first church of Christ. He was a rabbinically trained theologian and teacher. He was a brilliant man. He was a philosopher. He was part of the Pharisees movement. He called himself at one point a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was zealous for his faith and zealous in his desire to stamp out the Christian movement because he felt it was an affront to the God that he had known up to that point in his life. So what did he do? First, he stood by granting approval to those who were stoning Stephen to death. Then he led efforts to identify Christians and to put them in prison. A lot of times you think that would stamp out some kind of a movement. The chief priests in the Sanhedrin were allowed to oversee local government, applying punishment short of death, allowed to do that by the Roman overlords. They needed Pilate, if you remember, to sanction Jesus' crucifixion. They couldn't do that alone. But Luke identifies Saul's aim. But Saul began to destroy the church. That's what he thought he was going to do. How successful was he? Well, he struck fear into the hearts of ordinary people. And there was fear that rippled through that church, and it's completely understandable. He harassed some. He jailed others. On his final foray, he was headed to Damascus, today in Syria. In other words, he was pushing the borders of how far that license would go. There are some parts of the world today that are places where Christians are facing direct opposition, unlike here in the United States. Iran, Afghanistan, India, Sri Lanka, North Korea, China, Myanmar, Rwanda, Nigeria, probably a few more. Despite all of this, despite how dangerous it is to be a Christian in those lands, Christian faith continues to spread more in those lands than in ours right now because the people who have Christian faith who are holding on to that are doing this in such a profound, powerful way that it emboldens others and says, why would people hang on? Why wouldn't they renounce their faith if this was all just a tradition? There's something that these people have, and faith spreads that way. And then we're going to look at one third move, how God worked recovery in the early church. Three quick ideas. One, he used the scattering. I repeated that word a few times earlier, scattering. Scattering has the idea that people splinter off, people are separated from each other, people run to get as far away as they can to a safer place. At first, the scattering of the first church seemed like a death blow. 
But God used it, we find in these four verses, to spread the message of the gospel because wherever they went, they took the word with them. Ashley won't hear it because the music, the worship team's kind of working out. But what a great choice she made this morning in that opening song that we started with. One of the lyrics said, You took what the enemy meant for evil, and you turned it for good. And you turned it for good. That's why we sing that over and over. We need to be reminded. That's what God does. He takes what the enemy intended for evil, and he uses it for good. And he used the scattering in that way. Here's a second way that God worked recovery in the early church. He called the chief persecutor of the church <laughs> to become one of the leaders of the church. At the beginning of chapter 8, Saul of Tarsus is the feared enemy of the church. He's commissioned people to go door to door like they've been doing in Nigeria. And if they find that people are Christians, they grab them and they're throwing them into prison. And in Nigeria, it's even worse today. But by the end of chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus has become a servant of Jesus. Can you see the surprising plot twist? This is what I meant at the opening part of this message. The plot twists in the book of Acts are crazy because of the way that God works behind the scenes. Who would have seen that coming? Who would have seen that Saul of Tarsus would become Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? Who would believe that that Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted other people, who stood there approving of the stoning death of Stephen, would himself be stoned and left for dead three times and continue to lift up the name of Jesus? Unbelievable. When circumstances look bleak, look... He involved more leaders... Okay, they're going to come after Peter and John and a a few of the leaders who are most prominent among the apostles. They're going to come after Stephen as a leader of the deacons. The second half of chapter 8 begins to follow the evangelistic ministry of Philip, one of the disciples that we hear very little of, but Philip goes to another place pushed out by the scattering and he's leading a revival in Samaria. And then the Holy Spirit whispers to him one day and whisks him away and he's on a a lonely road and he doesn't know what's happening and this Ethiopian government official in a chariot comes walking by. He's reading the book of Isaiah in Hebrew and he gets to chapter 53 that talks about the suffering servant who will become the Messiah and he sees Philip walking along the road and, and he's says, can you explain this for me? (laughs) And Philip explains how that's Jesus who's being talked about in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And he leads him to faith in Christ. And then the Ethiopian royal official, a eunuch, says to Philip, hey, look, here's a little pond. Here's a body of water. What's to keep me from being baptized right now? And Philip does it right there. Doesn't need a crowd. Doesn't need an entourage. Doesn't need all the family there. Doesn't need the whole church there. He baptizes him. And then the Spirit whisks him off somewhere else. Here's the point. We start to see these other people who God is using. And every time that there is a great disruption in the church, every time that God needs to work recovery, one of the things that he does is he spreads out the ministry. So it doesn't all just hang on one or a few, but he enfolds more people. The Holy Spirit didn't want them all to stay together in Jerusalem as one big, happy church family 
He sent them out, and he used persecution to do it because the gospel was meant for the whole world. And if they stayed in Jerusalem, that wouldn't happen. And they would become even more effective on the road and on the run. Can you see the surprising plot twists? Who would have seen all this coming? Do you feel that in some way we're in a little bit of a crazy point? Church has changed over the last 30 months. There are people who've set in habits of staying home on Sunday morning, not watching on, online or not coming here, who probably aren't coming back. That's what habits do. might take some great disruption in their lives to bring them back. So we're going to grow with new people. We're going to grow with you. We're going to grow with those who are listening to what God is doing. And there are several of you that have come in during this time, and it's been amazing to watch and to see. Church won't look exactly like it did in the past as we move from this period, not just here, but pretty much everywhere. And part of what's going to be exciting is seeing what God lights on fire next for our good. When the circumstances look bleak, look for what God does next. I think, despite the fact that we are recovering, if you will, from the great disruption of the last couple of years. There's probably no better time to be a Christian so far in our lives than right now because God is at work. And every time we see this through history, God is at work behind the scenes. He's doing something new. Open your eyes. Get ready to see what God's going to do next. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. But God is always at work behind the scenes. And the word spreads. You on board? We're going to have a great fall together. We're going to have a great next year together. And God's going to involve all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful church that I get to be a part of week in and week out. Thank you for the way we are changing, growing, sometimes the way that we are scattering. I believe that you are using all of this. We pray for all those who, for whatever reason, are not going to be back in our church and our other churches. We pray that there will be a God-ordained scattering Will you take them somewhere else where they can be greatly effective and affected by your enduring word and by your love and by your Holy Spirit's presence? And we pray that as we embrace the changes that we're experiencing in this time, that you will con continue to give us the heart to see what you're doing next and see what you will light on fire next and to get behind that. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful congregation of North River. And I pray that as we move toward the fall season, you'll give us great joy in seeing you at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, with our teachers, and everywhere we go. And we ask this in the mighty, victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.